Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Lights and Shadows, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for March 3rd, 2019. On the mountaintop, Jesus erupts in sudden light. As the sleepy disciples cower in the grass, two figures appear out of time and space. In solemn tones, they speak of Jerusalem, departure, and accomplishment. The disciples babble in response, Let's make tents. Let's stay right here always. This is good. A cloud descends, thick and impenetrable. As it envelops the disciples, they fall to their faces, anticipating death. But a voice addresses them, tender and gentle. The voice hums with delight, and the disciples, a bit braver now, glance up. They gaze at Jesus, the Shining One, and the Father's pure joy sings with the stars. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. In the valley, a boy rides in the dust. He shrieks and drools and his eyes, wide open, feral, sees nothing but darkness. Around him, a crowd gathers and swells, eager for spectacle. Scribes jeer, and Jesus' disciples wring their hands in embarrassment. Frauds, someone yells into the night. Where's your master? Why has he left you? We don't know, the disciples mutter, gesturing vaguely at the mountain. Fear wars with exhaustion as they watch the boy claw at his own face. A voice, strangled, singular, rends the night. This is my son, a man cries out as he pushes through the crowd to gather the convulsing boy into his arms. Everyone stares as the father cradles the child against his chest. Please, he sobs to the stars, please. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's Transfiguration Sunday, the apex of the literal liturgical season we call Epiphany. After weeks of hints and intimations, a star, a dove, an abundance of wine, today we stand in full sunlight, basking in the Beloved's glory. Today we hear the very voice of God. All three synoptic gospels tell the story of the Transfiguration, underscoring its importance to the early church. And all three end their account with a narrative of the demon-possessed boy whom the disciples can't heal. It's an odd pairing, to say the least, and it has always intrigued me. But this year, it commands my attention in a more pressing way, because I know what it's like to be a parent seeking healing for my child. As I write these words, my son is entering month 19 of a continuous and thus far untreatable post-concussive headache. He hasn't attended school since October of 2017. Some days, the pain is so bad he never makes it out of bed. At this point, it's unclear when he'll finish high school or be able to return to his much-loved extracurricular activities. So, as much as we love and trust the glorious mountaintops of the Christian story, our family has been living in the valley. Cue the transfiguration. Over the centuries, the singular event in Jesus' life has accumulated many layers of theological meaning. Growing up, I was taught that the transfiguration is important because it reveals Christ's divine nature, confirms his sonship, foreshadows his death, secures his place in the stream of Israel's history, exalts him above the law and the prophets, and prefigures his resurrection. Weighty stuff, but here's the thing. I rarely heard the sick boy's story mentioned in this theologizing. If it was named at all, it was only to underscore the spiritual point that we should not hoard our mountaintop experiences. If the bumbling Peter thought it would be cool to pitch a tent on Mount Glory, then the sick boy's narrative function was to correct him. No, Peter, that's actually not the divine plan. You can't stay up there in spiritual ecstasy land. The broken world down below needs you. 
I don't have any arguments with transfiguration theology, but I'll be honest, it leaves me cold these days. Yes, Jesus revealed his majesty on a mountaintop. Yes, it is essential for us to contemplate that amazing epiphany and consider what it reveals about Jesus' identity. But here's what I'd like to know. How does glory on the mountaintop speak to agony in the valley? What does it mean that the two experiences, fullness and emptiness, ecstasy and despair, light and shadow, share a landscape in this famous gospel narrative? Aren't there two beloved sons in the story? I have no idea how the crowd at the base of the mountain experienced a transfiguration, if they did at all. Did Jesus' otherworldly glow reach the valley as a tiny print prick of light? Did the crowd glimpse the ominous cloud that descended over Peter, James, and John? Did they hear a rumble, distant like thunder, when God spoke of his chosen one? We don't know. What we know is that Jesus invited three disciples, only three, up the mountain. What we know is that the remaining nine spent the night in anxious futility, trying to do their master's work as the stakes rose higher and higher. What we know is that the scene in the valley became tense and ugly, as a much-longed-for healing didn't happen. What we know is that a father and a son suffered, even as the heavens broke open on the mountaintop. What we know is that some people who really needed Jesus that night experienced the ache of his absence, even as a select few basked in his glory. What if this story, like so many in the Bible, is simply telling us the truth about reality here on earth, describing what we already know about how life works, but fear to say aloud because we're so invested in shiny, happy endings? I tend to interpret the Bible as if its stories apply only to me, me, an individual, my mountaintop experience, my valley, my relationship with my God. But this is both misguided and dangerous. The truth is that my mountain lies right next to your valley, The truth is that your pain does not cancel out my joy. The truth is that it is entirely possible for you to sit in church on a Sunday morning and bask in the sweet presence of God's Spirit, while one pew over I cry my eyes out because of the ache of his absence feels unbearable. The same applies if I widen the lens. Do we not, in the privileged West, occupy so many mountains, while our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world dwell in valleys of hunger, warfare, violence, and abuse? Do we not at the same time experience valleys peculiar to first-world 21st-century life, isolation, anxiety, boredom, frenzy, while many who have less by way of material and technological comforts enjoy the mountaintops of more nourishing cultural traditions and communities? To say that all of this is unfair is completely beside the point. It is the world we live in, as our gospel story so honestly illustrates. And so here's the great challenge to the Christian life, the great challenge to the Church. Can we speak glory to agony and agony to glory? Can we hold both the mountain and the valley in faithful tension with each other, denying neither, embracing both? Can we do this hard work out of love and compassion for each other so that no one among us, not the joyous one, not the anguished one, not the beloved one, not the broken one, is ever abandoned or forgotten? Yes, Jesus came down from the mountain. Yes, he healed the desperately sick boy. But let's not forget the suffering that came first. Let's not flatten the story to give our religion neat lines and soft edges. The suffering was real, and it deserves honest witness. After all, the cry of that human father, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, is the most authentic and powerful description of the Christian life I know. He didn't find that testimony on a mountaintop. He forged it in the valley of his son's pain. Right now, it's the cry I cling to as I sit by my son's bedside, praying and waiting.
With Transfiguration Sunday, we come to the end of another liturgical season. Having seen the light of Epiphany, we now prepare for the long shadows of Lent. I don't know what voices will speak to us in the wilderness. Maybe you'll hear glory. Maybe I'll hear agony. Maybe we'll hear each other. Whatever you hear, don't flinch. Don't flee. Don't assume that one voice must drown out the other. Both voices need to speak. Both voices have much to teach us. So listen. Listen. Both voices are beloved of a father. For books this week, Dan reviews Faith, A Journey for All by Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter might not have been one of our country's greatest presidents, but since his four years in office from 1977 to 1981 and a bitter defeat for re-election at the age of 56, the 39th president has lived a full and purposeful life. In 1982, he founded the Carter Center to combat the global scourges of war, poverty, and disease. In 2002, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. For the last 35 years, he and his wife, Rosalind, have spent at least one week a year building houses for the poor. And this little volume on faith is his 30th book. Faith expressing itself in love, says the Apostle Paul, is the only thing that matters. He never really articulates a distinction, and like many people, he switches back and forth between the two, But for Carter, faith is both a verb, to believe or trust, and also a noun, that which is believed. He notes, for example, that that one of the earliest faiths that anyone has is their implicit trust in their mother's love. We all have faith in basic principles, some central core that is enduring and never changes, a sort of permanent foundation on which our lives can be fashioned, or something unshakable in which to have faith, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Bill of Rights, the Ten Commandments, or the Sermon on the Mount. Carter draws heavily and rather nostalgically on his own personal experiences of Christian faith and political service, including his many decades of teaching Sunday school in his Georgia Baptist Church. There's a chapter on eight people who have inspired his faith, which includes Millard Fuller, the founder of Habitat for Humanity, his mother Lillian, who joined the Peace Corps at the age of 68, and even his brother Billy, who conquered his alcoholism. Carter can sound sanctimonious. Gary Wills, for example, has noted his, quote, prissy nagging. But it's worth remembering that back in his own day, the people who really disliked Carter were his own Southern Baptists and the newly founded Moral Majority that voted him out of office for canceling Bob Jones University's tax exemption, supporting the Equal Rights Amendment, calling for a Palestinian homeland, and holding a family conference where abortion, contraception, gay rights, and divorce were part of the discussion. Much to his credit, Carter is deeply disturbed about a number of issues. On the second page of the book, he uses italics to remind us that the nuclear threat still exists. In an op-ed 10 days before the U.S. invasion, Just War or a Just War, he opposed the war with what is now a fulfilled prophecy, quote, although there are visions of peace and democracy in Iraq, it is quite possible that the aftermath of a military invasion will destabilize the region and prompt terrorists to further jeopardize our security at home. He laments that in 2017, there were 240,000 American troops openly stationed in at least 172 foreign countries, plus more than 37,000 others in places militarily classified as secret, while the American infrastructure investment gap is the largest of the 50 richest nations. He similarly objects to our country's highest incarceration rates in the world and our environmental degradation. Yes, this is a simple book by a man who in some ways has a simple faith. Fair enough. But like Wills, I too am encouraged that Carter keeps on teaching his Bible classes in his 93rd year of life. 
He is still looking in the Bible for the mercy and love of God, and he helps me find them there. For movies this week, Dan reviews The Second Moment of Creation. In April of 2018, PBS, in partnership with the BBC, premiered a new nine-part series called Civilizations, the theme of which is to examine the formative role of art and the creative imagination in the forging of humanity itself. The one-hour episodes include What is Art Good For?, God and Art, The Cult of Progress, which I reviewed earlier for JWJ. Other episodes consider Paradise on Earth, Depictions of Nature, and How Do We Look, The Human Body in Art. I love the title for this very first episode, The Second Moment of Creation. It suggests the need or urge for human beings to co-create, to express themselves in objects, images, and architecture in ways that far transcend mere subsistence. And this is just what we find where the film begins, in a cave in South Africa, where archaeologists have found a large abalone shell that's decorated with red ochre pigment. The shell is about 100,000 years old. The film then moves to the cave art in Castillo, Spain, that's 40,000 years old. The narrative proceeds to the founding of cities like Ur, about 7,000 years ago, by which time the art and architecture is extraordinarily advanced, and then not just cities, but civilizations like the Mayans, which is where the film concludes. When we consider the time and labor that was invested in the earliest art, and how society freed the artists from the normal obligations and constraints of subsistence and survival, we glimpse how essential art was to their understanding of a full and meaningful life. I watched this film from the PBS website. And finally, for poetry this week, God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel, being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last nights off the black west went, oh morning, at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, uh, bright wings. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for March 3rd, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.